Today's lesson was recorded on November 2nd, 2021, and is the seventh lesson in our weekly Bible study through the book of Matthew. Today's lesson, we enter the mystical, and we're going to look at some of the possible background information to the transfiguration story and what it may be telling us. So by definition, the mystical is a mystery. So we must not hold on to it too tightly. We have to be careful to hold it loosely. We internalize it and we allow God's Spirit to work on us internally to understand the deeper meaning. So for many, this may be your first foray into the mystical side of Christianity or Judaism. Many Christians are simply not exposed to the mystical aspects of our faith. So if this happens to be the case for you, and if through this lesson you feel a calling to explore more, please check out the end of the video where I've included some resources that will help beginners look through that mystical window. Many people find the mystical side of the Christian faith, as well as Jewish mysticism, to be an enriching and life-giving adventure. So I encourage everyone to at least become familiar with this aspect of our faith as it plays such an important role. So we hope this study through the book of Matthew blesses you and helps you see just how deep scripture is. And as we look through that cultural lens of first century Judaism, we always see things that we've just never noticed before. And usually, those things are quite powerful at solidifying the foundations of our faith. So enjoy today's lesson on the mystical and the transfiguration. We're going to talk about the transfiguration. It's Matthew 17. We're barely going to read one sentence out of it at the very end. But if you want to have Matthew 17 open, I will have you turning in your Bible a little bit because we're going to look and try to build some background to the transfiguration since, I don't know, I would read past this and I didn't know what to do with it. You just say, okay, I believe it happened. Now I'll just go on to something that seems more um, that I can relate to. So if you want to have your Bible open to Matthew 17, that's fine. And you can, we'll be bumping around a little bit in the text to. Uh, read some other ones. But we're going to try to build some background today on this. This is week seven of our Matthew study. And the picture that I'm using in the background there, many of you have seen that mountain. That mountain is in the north east corner of Israel. That was taken in January, so it does snow, and that is a snow-covered mountain for maybe half of the year. It's called Mount Hermon. And the top of the mountain straddles a number of different countries, Syria on one side, uh, Lebanon on the other. There is a ski resort up there, so you can go skiing in Israel. And right at the base of that mountain, the southwest base of that mountain, is the village of Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus and his disciples go to Caesarea Philippi in Matthew. The very next story after Caesarea Philippi is the Transfiguration. This mountain is right next door, so it's likely, scholars point, church tradition, by the way, says it's Mount Tabor, but that doesn't really make sense, and Mount Hermon, here in the north part, right next to Caesarea Philippi, the word Hermon means sacred. All mountains were sacred in the ancient world. There's a little bit of sacredness in mountains today, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, this is the tallest mountain in the region, so it becomes the sacred mountain. And I'm just going to show you this real quick from Second Peter, because 
Peter is talking about the, the moment of the transfiguration, and he's telling his uh, audience that Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That's the transfiguration. So he's quoting what took place on the transfiguration. Verse 18 says, We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So is Peter giving us a clue as to where that mountain was by using the phrase on the sacred mountain? Anyways, that's why scholars point to Mount Hermon there in the background. So that's in 2 Peter, just a clue. Okay. We are going to enter the mystical tonight. And when you enter the mystical, you enter it with your hands wide open and not trying to grasp. You glimpse. You have a little flash of insight. You get a picture, if you've ever been in a moment, and get a picture of the reality of who Jesus is. It's like, oh, but you can't really grab hold of it. So there's something about it that is a little bit fleeting. That's the mystical. So much of our Bible, God is mystical. So much of God we, we don't know, we don't feel. And then all of a sudden you'll sense his presence very strongly. So much of the Bible is mystical. We'll talk about that a little bit. So when we enter the mystical, I, want to, I just what we're going to do is explore. And we're not going to try to come up with any hard and fast conclusions, although I think it will lead you someplace. But I just want you to know, I'm really just taking you on a journey of exploration to say, what information do we have from the first century that would help us understand what's going on in that mountain or with Jesus? What's it telling us at, at the base of it? So the mystical, um, in the ancient world, the mountain represents the spiritual journey or the mystical journey. You ascend into the mystical. We go up in our spiritual journey. God is always up, and our journey to God is up. The opposite of God is down. You don't want to go down. In the Bible, it always, whenever you're moving towards Jerusalem, you're going up, because God lives up. The mountain is where you meet God, right? The Tower of Babel in Iraq, Iraq is flat as a pancake. So what do you do? You build your own mountain to go up to the heavens. So the mountain is the place where heaven and earth meet, at least, I think, in our minds and in the minds of the ancient people, definitely. All right, so you're going up a sacred mountain. And what it looks like is if you just visualize we're on a journey, right? And as you go up this mountain, step by step, you're moving towards the mystical. And when you get to the very top of the mountain, you're now... Your spiritual awareness is wide open. And that's what we're going to see in this story, that as they get to the top of the mountain, the veil comes off of who Jesus is. That's the picture of what's happening. Now, many of you, I know, are on a spiritual journey. You might be able to give us clues to what has been going on with your spiritual journey. It's always an ascent. The majority of people start at the bottom, the base. That's where the majority of, say, church people are, is at the base. Something might happen in your life where suddenly you have an experience and you ascend up to the next level of spiritualness. 
suddenly your eyes see something different that you never saw before. There's a little shift and you rise up. Then maybe you rise up again, right? It's kind of hard to, I know that little man is small, but you know, if you think of the spirit world like a wedding cake, right? And when you pop through one layer of the wedding cake and you all of a sudden have your eyes go, oh, I see something different than I didn't see before. And all the people who are around you in the lower level, they can't see what you're seeing and they're trying to pull you back down. And that's what happens on a spiritual journey. The people will try to pull you back down as you're saying, no, 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 I see something really new here. And that happens all the time if you follow spiritual journeys. And then eventually, well, eventually for very few people, you get to that mystical space at the top. It's very different at the top up there. And of course, that's where we're at today with Jesus, is we're going to find him at the top of the mystical peak. So that's what the mountain represents. So the fact that they're going up a mountain makes sense to them. That's just, that's the mystical journey. So again, what we're going to do is just glimpse. We're going to look at, they're going to look at the surrounding information and say, is there anything that we see that stands out as who Jesus is? Because we're on that mystical journey. Don't hold on tightly. You know, the tighter you squeeze onto the mystical, it just slips right through your hands. You can't hold it. So you just say, okay, God, it's up to you. So the mystical, we, I already mentioned, the Bible is a mystical book at times. Sometimes it's very practical. Don't lie. Don't steal. Okay, that's practical. Other times, it's mystical. And very often, that mystical includes a mountain. So for instance, I'm just going to go through a few of these. Abraham. Abraham, uh, chapter 22. He ascends a mountain with his son, Isaac. He's on a mission. And a few years ago, we did that study with the, of the donkeys. The word in Hebrew for donkey is the same word as material. So it's like Abraham left the donkeys behind. He left the, he left the material world behind. He's on a spiritual journey up a mountain. Moses, that's a big one. And the transfiguration reflects right back to Moses. So Moses ascends a mountain to meet God. He's up in the, he's up in the mystical part, and he sees God. He sees the throne. Jacob, Jacob sees the ascending and descending of the, the ladder, the angels ascending and, and descending. And notice it starts with ascending, which means they're on the ground first. They're going up and then they're coming back down. Isaiah has a vision. Ezekiel has a vision. Daniel has a vision. All of those are mystical. So you can see there's a lot going on in the Bible where you step into this mystical place where they're seeing something that's not normally seen. That's what we'll see tonight, Matthew 17 and Jesus and what we call the transfiguration. So you don't want to shy away from the mystical but it can get wonky because it's not always something that we can grasp onto very easily, and we want to feel comfortable gra grasping onto something. The Trinity itself, as we'll see today, we're going to be looking at the basis. This is where the Trinity begins. Uh, the development of the Trinity took a few hundred years. That's mystical. You know, it's real hard for people to describe the Trinity. So, okay, transfiguration. Now, here's the big problem. and. Um, we're on number three, if you have your handout, and it's the, it's the big problem. We're going to look at this from the perspective of mostly Jewish mysticism, because obviously when Jesus is doing this, he's in the Jewish audience. And the mystics within Judaism were really struggling. There's some tensions that exist 
with God. So we have a couple problems, and we've gone over this before in the past, so a little bit will be reviewed, but they noticed, of course, that God is infinite, and man is clearly not infinite. We're finite, right? And that creates a problem, because we have no clue what it means to be infinite. We have, we have no clue what it means to be unlimited. And God has no limitations. So even though this painting looks like the fingers are really close, that's a gigantic gap between what humanity, we cannot fully comprehend God. Why? Because God's infinite. We can know God, we can know aspects of God, and be in relationship with God, but we can't know God in totality. And that's where human beings get in trouble, because our finiteness, we just cannot fathom that. So they notice God's infinite, but we live in a finite world. So God has to somehow interact an infinite God with a finite world. That's one problem. A second problem that is, goes right along with it is God has no image. He has no image or form. And yet, Genesis 1.26 says, I will make man in my image, or in our image, even better. Well, what's the image of God? If God has no image or form, then how are we in the image of God? And whatever image there is of God must look something like humanity. How do we reconcile these issues of no image, no form, and being mankind being made in the image of God? And then a finite God, or I'm sorry, an infinite God coming into the finite. So these are the real problems. And one of the things to point out is the reason there are warnings about not making images of God is because if God is unlimited, the moment you make an image, what do you do? What do you cause to happen? Immediately you place limitations on God. So if we're full of limitations as humanity, and I'm going to put a little circle up there on God, and I'm going to say, see, that's how I define God, right? I place my limitations or project them out and say, nope, this is what God is like. And what happens when you walk up next to me? You go, no, I see something a little bit different. See, my circle is over here, right? Because I'm projecting my limitations or you're projecting your limitations a little bit differently. And then another person walks up and says, oh, no, no, you guys are way wrong. It's over here. And you can see what happens, especially in like our Protestant faith. How do those people get along who can't see God the same way? We divide. The Protestants protested the Catholic Church, and then we protested each other all along the way, right? And it's, we don't see God the same way. Well, let's just divide. You go worship over there. I'll come worship over here. Let's just get along, try to get along at a distance, something like that. So there's real problems when you try to create an image of God because you immediately will fail. It'll have all kinds of limitations. And the one thing that the Jewish mystics and the Christian mystics will do is they will very intentionally remind themselves that God has no limitations, that God is endless, infinite, because it keeps them from trying to put God into a box, as we would say. So there's a real problem when it comes to humanity and God and us creating an image of God. Okay, so here's the problem. We have God. God is unlimited. He has no image. He has no form. We have man that the Bible tells us is created in the image of God. So there must be something right in between here 
that you're going to be able to connect mankind with God. It's something in the heavens, and we might even call it a heavenly man. There's an, some image of humanity up in the heavens that we are made in that image. And so what, then, is that image of the, the man up in the heavens? So that's what we're going to try to tackle today. Because the way they thought was, ah, there must be something up there that, that causes us to have an image. Okay, so number four, this is the mystical solution or their mystical thought, the way they put this together. Now, immediately when I draw my picture, I'm going to put limitations on God, so I apologize. But imagine that you have God, infinite. We can't even fathom what that means. He's infinite. He's out there. And when he goes to create, come into creation, the finite creation, he has to manifest himself into finite space. That's one of the problems. How does an infinite God go into finite space? And what they came up with was when his manifestations come in to the finite space, the appearance looks like a king, a man. And they say that as God was creating the, the, the earth, bef well, before the creation of the world, as God manifests himself into the finite, the image we get is a man, and that's going to become the image with which we are going to end up getting our image from. So there's a couple, I'm going to go over these names once, and I'll go over them again in a, in a second. They called him, the Jewish mystics call this Adam Kadman. Adam Kadman means the original man. Adam meaning man. So the original man. The original man is a heavenly man. We're going to hear Paul use the word heavenly man, the phrase. They also called this thing that's manifesting itself in creation the word. We'll see a Jewish philosopher in the first century who talks about God's firstborn, the word. How does John begin his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. That's the manifestation that not part of creation, because that the creation is going to come through that. But as this, this is just, again, they're, they're exploring, they're trying to figure out how do we solve this problem, because humanity is going to show up in the image of God, so that there must be some heavenly image that looks like a man. Okay. So I use this, let me just give you the words again that they use. If you look, if you Google Adam Kadman, you will find it attached to the Jewish mystics. Now, original man is, that would be attached to the original, myst, or to the Jewish mystics of the, the Middle Ages. When you go back to the first century, they haven't quite come up with that yet, but we do get the phrase heavenly man. And, as I mentioned, the Word of God, Word is, a, is the active force, but it's some intermediary, something that stands between the infinite God and the finite uh, creation. And, of course, John's going to say, yeah, we know that Word. The Word, it, that's how he starts his gospel. But this all comes from Jewish mysticism, or uh, we'll see Judaism in the first century. Another thing, the way this works, is 
God is going to create, but all of creation flows through the heavenly man. So, what does Paul say? For in him all things were created, things in the heaven and the earth, whether the thrones, the powers, the rulers, authority, all things have been created through him. Yes, it's exactly how the Jewish mystics saw this. And it flows out, and then you get creation, what we see, the created world. And what's flowing out of God is pure light. Now, what happens at the transfiguration? It's pure light that just comes out of Jesus. He's declaring who he actually is, right? That's what we're seeing in this transfiguration. But this idea, what's on your screen right now, that's Jewish mystical thinking. And of course, that's going to flow right into our Christian, um, early Christianity. And we'll see that in the text. The flowing of God goes through the heavenly man, who is then the Adam, and it's pure light that flows in and creates the world and sustains the world and contains the world, and it gets all kinds of crazy weird. But okay, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a picture of how you go from an infinite God into having uh, something in the finite and something that's firstborn of creation. It's the first thing that happened in creation. All right, so let's go. I'm going to show you some first century evidence. So on, the, on your second page, just so you know, and because I'm putting this uh, out on video, you got to show where you're getting this evidence from, right? Because you can't just show up and say, oh yeah, that whole thing with John is a Jewish idea. We're going to put, show you some evidence of where this comes from. So there's three of them, and then I'll show you a couple quotes in a minute. So there's a philosopher by the name of Philo. He's in Alexandria, Egypt. He lives about 25 BC to 50 AD. So he would be contemporary with Jesus and with Paul. John would know him. He's well known in that uh, Mediterranean world, and he has prolific writing. Uh, so Philo is one of them. There's a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. It's called Targum. So when you translate the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, called the Targum, we'll see the use of the word. And then, of course, we're going to see New Testament writings that reflect exactly the same thing about uh, this heavenly man, both in John and Paul and Hebrews and Peter. So there's a lot. Okay, so the first one. Philo of Alexandria, 25 BC to 50 AD. And he uses the phrase, the heavenly man. He compares the heavenly man with the earthly man. We'll see one sentence, and I, I gave you um, a few of his quotes because you want to be able to read it yourself. What you can see is happening here is there's a progression going on with thinking. So it's not like Philo's right perfectly right, but you can see he talks about the heavenly man or the word and doesn't explain it. So that means that his audience understands what he's talking about. There's some common thinking going on that we're just not aware of until we get to the New Testament. They're searching for trying to solve these problems. So heavenly man is one, and then he's going to talk about the word. The word being the firstborn of God, and the word, logos, is the same thing we find in John. Okay, so Philo, two quotes, and now these are on the back of your 
or the third page that I gave you, I abbreviated them just for the, this presentation. You can go back and read the more extended quote. He's talking about Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, and he says, there are two types of men, the one a heavenly man, so there we have heavenly man, and the other earthly. Now, Paul's going to do the same thing. He's going to compare a heavenly man with an earthly man. And so in pretty much the same context. So what I want to show you is that the language is there in the first century that our New Testament writers are going to say, okay, now we're going to apply that to Jesus. So there's the heavenly man, at least one example, and there's more. And then one of them just for about the word, this one says, God's firstborn, the word. So he uses logos, the logos of God, who holds the eldership among the angels, their ruler, as it were. Now that's strange because he's saying it's the word of God, but then he tells you, oh yeah, and this word of God is the ruler of all the angels. Well, that's what Jesus is. He's going to send his angels out at, at judgment time. Again, the whole point, first century, this idea already exists. And the New Testament writers are going to say, yep, that's exactly right. And that's Jesus. They're going to apply this all to Jesus. Okay, so that, that's Philo. The second one is called a Targum. That may be a new word, but a Targum simply is a translation of the Bible. So the Hebrew Bible, obviously the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. I've mentioned a couple times when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they call it the Septuagint. So they had a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Then they also have an Aramaic paraphrase, and the paraphrase is key, called the Targum. So if you only speak Aramaic, then I take the Hebrew Bible, I translate it, in, or, yeah, I translate it for you into Aramaic, but when I do, I paraphrase things. So what's cool, if you read the Targums, is you can see how they're interpreting the text, and they're doing it, just like if you looked at the New Living Translation, which is mostly a paraphrase, they have to interpret the sentence. And so you get an idea of what the author is thinking. So the Aramaic is a paraphrase. And so what we find in the Aramaic paraphrase, in the Targum, is the word, is an active, almost like a, a being. It's a part of God that creates, and it's a part of God that, that mediates between creation and the infinite God. So, for instance, and this one I did put on your handout, just to make it easier for you. If you read Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It only mentions God. In, that's what the Hebrew says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, you go to the Aramaic, and it says, in the beginning, with wisdom. So, that comes out of Proverbs. They're now adding in. Proverbs 8.22, wisdom was there at the foundation of the world. In the beginning, with wisdom, the word of the Lord. Ah, the word. And that word, memra, is all over the Aramaic, meaning the word. It's the active force. It's the, again, mediating between uh, an infinite God and a finite creation. And of course, that's how John starts his, his gospel. So, in the beginning, with wisdom, the word of the Lord, created and perfected the heavens and the earth. All right, so this is really cool, because now that it helps us understand John 1, the beginning of, of John's gospel. 
In the beginning was the Word. Yes, it was that, that part of God that's now coming into creation. We call it the Word. That's what they did in the first century. Okay, I'm going to put this up just in case anybody would like to have a, uh, a good reference. And I'll show you an article that's in the reference, but you can also find it online. There's a great book. It's called The Jewish Annotated New Testament. It's only the New Testament. Make sure you get the second edition. Don't buy a used first edition. You want to go get the second edition, Jewish Annotated New Testament. It's got tons of great notes that will point you to all the things that, to help you mine the information. And then in the back of this book, which is the best part, there's got to be 25 or 30 essays all about Judaism in the first century, that second temple period, the history, the historical developments up to Jesus. It's very helpful to have some essays to learn about all of that context. And one of the essays is about the logos, the word logos. And he's talking about John's use of logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's by an author named Daniel Boyerin. And you can actually find this online. So on your handout, I have a footnote, Daniel Boyerin, Logos, a Jewish word. If you click on your, uh, the handout, you should be able to get to a website called Academia that you can then go in and find this if you want to read it. But it's a great explanation. He's also written another one that you can find online called, let me make sure I have this, The Gospel of the Memra. The Gospel of the Memra is first century theology of this active force from God. And I hope you can see that what's happening here as Judaism is progressing into Christianity and then Christianity eventually progresses is we know the Trinity, but we know the Trinity after 2,000 years of being um, fleshed out. You know, they don't have the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the New Testament. It's something that's developed over the next couple hundred years, and this is the beginning of it. When they can tell there's something, uh, God is, even though God is one, he's got different dimensions to them, like uh, three in one, something like that. All right, so we've got this idea of the heavenly man. And the heavenly man, just to give you some, some of the attributes of him, he's pure light. He pre-exists creation. He, it's through him that all things are created. So when we talk about Jesus pre-existing creation, yes, our creation goes through him. All creation went through him. And the key is here, he's the archetype for humanity. He's the blueprint. He's the heavenly blueprint that made the image that of the first Adam there in the, in the garden. So Jesus, in a sense, is the archetype. He's the blueprint for humanity. What's our goal? To become Christ-like. Because that's who God created us to be, fully in that image. So uh, if you want to turn with me, if, you, if you're following in your Bible, you can. I'm going to do, go through three different sections and read them real quick just so you can see how this is all going to fit together in our New Testament. So the first one, of course, is John 1, 1 to 5, and we've, you already know the answer since I've said it so many times. But John 1, 1 to 5, the famous prologue, is the emphasis is on that idea of word. So if we look at starting John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the 
word, and the word was with God, and the word, and the word was God, word again. And so there you have, he's pulling from that, that collective idea. And then verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Yes, that's true. Through him, all things were made. Yes, that's true too. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Yep, that's true too. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Who's the light of the world? That's the light that comes flowing through from God into creation, and it illuminates. Now, is it physical light, or is it It's just anything that illuminates? So, what we just did about that heavenly man and the Word is the background to John 1. And of course, if you read on, if you continue on in John 1, it gets even better because he's explaining more. The second one, and this is a great one, is Colossians 1, 15 to 19. So Colossians 1, 15 to 19, and you guys all know this because you've heard it so many times. Like Philo says, the firstborn, God's firstborn is the Word. It's that, it's that active part of God in creation. You could call him the Son, the firstborn Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That's right. He's the image. We have an invisible God, infinite, but we are made in his image. So what's the image? The Son is the invis- image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Yes. Now, just so if you guys remember, why does Paul include this little piece to the Colossians? That's an important one, right? The Colossians were a group of people called the Phrygians. And there's a writing that comes out of uh, Egypt that says that the Phrygians were the firstborn of all creation. Paul says, no, you weren't. The son, is the, the son is the image of the living God. He's the firstborn of all creation. So he's actually, he puts it in the Colossians letter because it makes, he's refuting something that they believe. Okay, verse 16, for in him all things were created. Yes, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. That's exactly right. That's that, the mystical image of the heavenly man. Now I'm going to skip down just to show you. The heavenly man, as God is manifesting himself into the, into the finite space that is our created world, uh, it's all of his attributes, all of the attributes of God that show up that we can know, the knowable attributes. So at verse 19, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Yes. While Jesus is on earth? Yes. In his heavenly form? Yes. It's the fullness of God that's being, that's being put on display. Last one, last uh, text, 1 Corinthians, it's chapter 15, 49, uh, 47 to 49. Now, one thing you would note, why is he going to talk about this with, with Corinthians? Well. In Corinth, there's a man named Apollos. We know that from the book of Acts. We know it from Corinthians. Some of you say you follow Paul. Some say you follow Apollos. And Apollos is a guy that comes from Alexandria, Egypt. That's where Philo is from. You find the same idea possibly to that audience there in Corinth because they're aware of Philo's writings. Okay, so verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. There's the earth part, just like Philo did. The second man is of heaven. Yeah, that's exactly how Philo explains it. As was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. 
So those who are, who are only reflecting the earthly in uh, existence are only reflecting the earthly Adam. And is the heavenly man, so, or, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those of heaven. So as Paul says, you are now a citizen of heaven. So whose image should you be reflecting? The heavenly man. Verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, uh-huh, because we, we share in the Adam, right, as an ancestor, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. That's what we're supposed to do. So, take all that information, and we're going to read one verse about the transfiguration, but it shows you the transfiguration is a picture of who Jesus is, the reality. He goes up onto a mountain. It's a spiritual, mystical journey upward. And when they get to the top, it's like their eyes are suddenly opened and they can see the reality of who Jesus is. And he's the heavenly man. He's the original Adam, or as Paul puts it, the last Adam. He's got a different way of going about it. He's the heavenly man. He's the word. And he shows up in all light. So he comes blasting forth in light. And it's part of that, this story of the transfiguration is showing you who the reality of Jesus is. But we don't have the backstory to say, oh, okay, I got to get that part. We understand it's his divine nature. But there's more to it. There's a bigger backstory. I put... Yeah, I think I put on your sheet. Yes, I put on your sheet a quote. This is what did it for me. I have this book. It's called Honey from the Rock. If you want to learn about Jewish mysticism, well, it's a great, it's an amazing book. I've had this book for like 13 years, and every year I read it, and every year I, I, I see something I didn't see before. It's truly one of the, it's truly an amazing book. It's a, an introduction of Jewish mysticism. And the author is Lawrence Kushner. If you're interested in that, this would be a place to, at least you could start out. Um, Honey from the Rock. He has a quote in the chapter on the Adam Kadman, the original man. And he says this in, his, in that chapter on the original man. Lawrence Kushner writes a lot of poetry in his chapters. And he says, as his divine blueprint originally called for, so the divine blueprint is the Adam Kadman. You have an Adam on the earth, you have an Adam in the heaven. And then he says this, and being made from pure light, streaming from the apertures of his face. And I read that, and I was like, that's the transfiguration story. Because when they see Jesus, what does Matthew say about the light coming out of his face? Well, Matthew 17, 2 says this, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Boom, light emanating out of his face. And his clothes became white as light. Now, you get the rest of it. You get the voice from heaven. You get the quoting of scripture. You get Moses and Elijah. Um, there's so much packed into this transfiguration story. It's really unbelievable. But I think Part of what we can understand from this is it shows us the reality of who Jesus is. He's that first figure that showed up before creation. 
the Word, the Heavenly Man. It blows me away, and it's mystical. So you really have to—this is something that you have to meditate on over and over and over. So watch the video again. Listen to the recording again. Do it two or three times, and I'm, what'll happen is you'll, it'll start to emerge out of you, and you'll see things you didn't see before. It's really, truly like that, because it's mystical. It's, you, it's hard to see and uh, the first time. Now, what are we supposed to do then? How does this implicate us? Let, well, let's check this out then. So God is the infinite God. But as he's creating, as he manifests himself in the finite world, the heavenly man is what appears, and creation comes through the heavenly man, and that then becomes the blueprint, the image for Adam, the first Adam. I will make man in my image. And of course, we are descendants of that Adam, so you fit in there. But what are you supposed to be doing, right? We're supposed to be coming, transforming by the power of the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus, of the Christ. And he is that heavenly man. He's the, he's the blueprint, the, the archetype. So as we transform our lives, we're supposed to slowly but surely move closer and closer to being just like Jesus in the world. And we'll never get there fully, but that's actually the whole point. Because we bear the image of Adam, yes, but we also bear the image of the heavenly man. And part of the process of spiritual transformation, sanctification, we call it in the Protestant or in the, yeah, our Protestant tradition, is to become like Jesus, the original, the way God intended us. Just so you know, in Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, this is their primary goal. They call it theosis. Protestants think of theosis as trying to become like God. That's not the way they view it. You partake in the divine nature. You transform your life to take part in that divine nature just as God wanted you to take part in. And the criticism that the Eastern Orthodox has of the West is that, hey, you don't go far enough. Yes, you got the salvation part right, but now you need to talk about the sanctification, the growth, the transformation that comes with being a Christian to become Christ-like. It's that sanctification process. So we get, we're big on getting saved, that first step, but then, you know, a lot of times we leave out that growth process that's a process of transformation. All right, that is the Transfiguration Week 7. So God willing, I was able to give you a little bit of an image of what was, what's going on in that background that leads up to this just event on a mountain. And we go, what are they doing? What does this mean? but that there's something going on. They would have more information than we often have, and that's generally the case. So, all right. Next week, we're going to talk about charity, and it's a little bit different view than we tend to think. I don't want to, I don't want to step on any theological toes, but we'll look at what the Bible says about charity and how Jesus talks about charity. So that will be next week. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson on the mystical and the transfiguration. If you have an interest in exploring the mystical side of the Christian faith, or Jewish mysticism for that matter, I recommend you check out some of the many books that have been written on this subject, or books written about the great mystics, like St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, 
or Meister Eckhart. A great place for you to start is a book called Mansions of the Heart by Thomas Ashbrook. And this will give you an idea of the writings of Teresa of Avila and the concept of spiritual growth and the movement towards the mystical. Another book would be about the life and writings of St. John of the Cross, who happened to be a contemporary of Teresa of Avila. And this is a book by William Maringer, appropriately called St. John of the Cross for Beginners. And then finally, my favorite Christian mystic is Meister Eckhart. He was a German theologian who lived in the late 13th century, beginning of the 14th century. And one of the great books about his life is called Dangerous Mystic by Joel Harrington. So I recommend you check out this book about Meister Eckhart's life, and then from there, you can go into reading some of his sermons or some of his writings. And the more you read Meister Eckhart, the more you begin to see the message that he's bringing to his audience. And then finally, if you're interested in the mystical as well as science, say quantum physics, I want to suggest a book called From Infinity to Man by Edward Schifrin. Now, this book explores the Jewish mystical teachings, and that includes the Adam Kadman that we discussed today, and then compares it to the scientific field of quantum physics. It's just a remarkable book that really opens up a window to both the Jewish mystical side and thoughts about quantum physics. So we hope that any of these resources help you move along your spiritual journey, and I'll include Amazon links for all of them in the description section below. Fig Tree Ministries is an educational nonprofit, and we are 100% listener-supported. So if our lessons have been valuable to you and your Bible study, we ask that you support our work with a financial donation. And whether it's a one-time donation or you become a monthly supporter, we appreciate your generous support. Donations are easy through our website, figtreeteaching.com, and you can easily become a monthly supporter for just as little as $5 per month. Across the top banner of our website, you'll find a donation link, and that will take you to a third-party site called DonorBox and our donation page within DonorBox. There, you can select the frequency and the dollar amount of your donation. Now, you'll immediately receive an electronic confirmation from DonorBox, and this will be used when you're completing your taxes. And we'll also place a link directly to our donation page in the description section below. So we continually pray for our supporters and our listeners that the full force of God's goodness would give them eyes to see the wonders of God's kingdom that are all around us. <music>